the pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the latest in our series of interview special podcasts. Uh, four years ago, Steven Soderbergh, one of the best directors in America, shocked the world by announcing his retirement. He was done. He was in his late 40s and he said, no, that's it. I'm walking away from all the troubles in my life. And he stopped quoting Craig David and then just retired. But we figured that it wouldn't stick, that somehow this intellectually restless guy would come back one day. Immediately he was uh, making his TV show, The Nick, pretty much. And lo and behold, he has returned to the movie-making fold with this week's very enjoyable heist movie, Logan Lucky, which stars Jenny Tatum, Adam Driver, Daniel Craig and Riley Keough. It's a lot of fun. And when uh, Steven Soderbergh came to London, I jumped at the chance to have an audience with the great man and ask him exactly what it was that drew him back out of retirement. Now, full disclosure, this is a fairly long interview, about 40 minutes. If you're in the market for a career retrospective going film by film through all his career highlights, this is not that interview. Instead, it's a different beast. It's a bit more meandering. Uh, but if you are a student of film, if you're someone who really wants an insight into how a top director works and how he thinks and how he thinks in terms of setting up a scene and his scene composition and editing and music, this is an, a remarkable insight into the mind of a great artist. And uh, he's a very, very interesting interesting guy and I hope you enjoy this. This is Steven Soderbergh. Enjoy. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the great Steven Soderbergh. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. You're not too jet-lagged? You okay? No, I'm good. I've got a good night's sleep. Oh, okay. I'm ready it's... to talk about myself. <laughs> uh, do you get bored of talking about yourself at any point? Well, it's, it's more that um, I'm a big believer in demystification uh-huh. and I do I do um, enjoy talking about process and I do mm-hmm. enjoy talking about what I've learned or what I'm trying to learn. Uh-huh. Um, th- what comes with that though is, is if you're in a situation in which you're um, doing a series of, of very, very short interviews back to back that you begin to hate yourself and uh-huh. you begin to hate the th- thing you just made (laughs) one of the one of the remedies to that which i employ is um to have a minimum length of an interview so that you have time Uh to have a conversation that goes beyond the first couple of standard questions so i feel like if i can turn it into a real conversation then then it's always fun and i always learn something well that's the ethos of the empire podcast as well conversations we well this is you know the podcast uh, sort of landscape has helped a great deal mm. i think in terms of um allowing for a longer more freeform conversation so yeah i'm i was very very happy to see that you guys were on the list oh fantastic and uh, we're very glad to have you back Back in the uh, directorial realm, uh, four years ago when you retired, um, we did an exit interview with you. I don't know if you remember that for, for yeah. Empire Magazine. Uh, perhaps one of the more bizarre experiences you've had. Uh, but now you're back, which has completely invalidated that, that interview, of course. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, but things changed, you know, some yeah. things changed and some things happened uh, that, that I could not have anticipated and as a result of some conversations that I was having with mm-hmm. some people I knew in the distribution business and some people I knew in the exhibition business, um, I saw an opening, a potential opening. And then this script came along kind of right when I was having these conversations. Mm-hmm. And as someone who um, 
if I'm, I'm not a sign reader and I'm not uh, I'm, I'm certainly not psychic, but I've also learned that um, you you should pay attention when things start to align. Yeah. And uh, this looked like uh, the time and the and the peace to to try this experiment. Mm-hmm. And the uh, experiment for people who don't know at home, could you explain exactly the, the, well, the, the distribution is, model behind this? The project? idea is to is to be able to put a movie into wide distribution in the U.S. Um, without using any of the auspices of a studio and retaining complete creative control over every aspect of the release mm-hmm. and creating an economic structure that's much more tilted in the direction of the talent and the people yes. that worked on the movie than it is the distributor um, or the or the financier. So there are aspects of this that piecemeal have been done by people before. I mean, Joseph E. Levine mm-hmm. was, you know, financing his movies with foreign presales yes. 50 years ago. No, yeah. this isn't new. Um, the and people, you know, the the ability to sell the non-theatrical rights uh, for enough money to cover the marketing costs uh, is not a new idea. But I think the way we were able to put all these various pieces together um, was was different. Mm-hmm. And um, and we had a film that I felt was a good test case for this scenario. It yes. was a, a, you know, I felt like a commercial piece that that um, that movie stars would fit well mm-hmm. inside of. It was a kind of film that I like to make. It's a mm-hmm. kind of film. It's the kind of film I like to watch. Yeah. Um, so it seemed like all green lights to me. And uh, <laughs> since I was on the set of Magic Mike XXL when the script came to me, um, I sort of passed it along to Channing, and I said, "I think this is a great part for you." Yeah. And he said. Yes, I think so too. And we started we started the ball rolling. But at that point, were you thinking of directing? Were you thinking of handing yes. it out to someone else? You weren't. No, I mean, I was given the script ostensibly to find a director. Okay. Um, but after a couple of weeks um, of of consideration slash inertia, um, <laughs> I just. You know, because I realized like, oh, now I'm going to have to walk back this this big public retirement. And and um, but then I thought, who cares? Um, <laughs> and uh, I told uh, the person who'd given me the script that that I, I wanted to do it. OK. And the uh, reaction was jubilation. Or... Um, surprise. <laughs> surprise. Surprise. What had you been doing? I mean, obviously, you'd been, you'd been very, very busy. You'd been producing. You'd been doing the Nick. Uh, I know from your interview with us a few years ago that you were planning to do more art. You obviously been watching a lot of stuff as well, doing some writing as well, I imagine. I'm trying to. I've been working on on the writing side. I've been working on two things. One, one is a, a book uh, about directing um, that I've been chipping away at for a long time. And the other is uh, an adaptation of a novel, a crime novel that a friend of mine wrote. Okay. Uh, both of both of these projects are going very slowly. Um, <laughs> and yeah, the Nick, the Nick was a surprise. I mean, I really, when Candelabra was finished and we were screening it and we went to Cannes and the movie came out, um, I, I really didn't have anything in front of me. There was, I'd, I'd really clean, cleaned out 
the cupboard of projects and and was going to just kind of disappear. And uh, the script for the Nick came in um, and I was the first person to get a look at it. And it really seemed like something I had to do. Mm. It, it was it was about everything that I'm interested in. Mm. Um, primarily the 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 search for new knowledge and it was in a context that i hadn't really been immersed in before mm-hmm. it was it seemed like a great opportunity to um contribute to one of the oldest genres in television which was the doctor show yes and um i just was i was really excited by what i read and so a couple of weeks into this enforced retirement i had to turn to my wife and say not only am I, I not only am I going back to work, but in four months we're going to start shooting ten hours of <laughs> television. And look, she said, if that's what you want to do, then that's what you should do. And we, it was such a scramble to get the show up and running quickly. Yeah, um, that I, I that I wasn't really thinking about if whether there was any deeper purpose or meaning in this decision mm-hmm. and I was very focused on the fact that we had a schedule that was terrifying yes and about a week into the shoot when when I when I felt that we'd found our rhythm and that we were going to be fine um I also realized this is this is the job that I enjoy doing this is mm. I like doing this yes and that I had I had conflated I think my frustration with the state of the movie business with the job itself. Yes. And and the Nick enabled me to kind of realize, no, those are two separate things. You actually really still enjoy this job. You just needed to find a space in which it was fun again. Mm. Yes. And, uh, and that show was fun. And then, yeah, I went off and worked on um, XXL with Greg Jacobs, which was also a lot of fun. We did the second season of The Nick, and then um, I went off and did this um, piece uh, called Mosaic, which will be out uh, later this year. Intriguing. And what can you say about that? Well, that's a branching narrative piece. Um, And so the reason it's taken so long is that not only was there a lot of trial and error in the editing of the piece because of Mm -hmm. its form, Mm -hmm. uh, there was also a significant technology piece that goes along with it because okay. it's an app yeah. that you engage with. And so the it was very important to me that the interactivity of it, the sort of the user interface aspect of it, be elegant and mm-hmm. be intuitive and be uh, attractive to the eye and just feel organic to the piece itself. Mm-hmm. And um, literally while I'm here, there's a new build that I have to download and take a look at. I'm really happy with where it's ended yeah. up. Yeah. Um, and this isn't, people have been doing branching narratives for a long time and and there are a lot of people working in this space now but i i felt like there was a a good balance between um a a viewer being intrigued Mm. by the opportunities that they're given as opposed to 
annoyed or or interrupted, feeling interrupted. Yes, yes. That I, yeah. I felt like we found a really good balance of of engagement. Um, so I'm I'm anxious for people to see it. Um, we're just trying to make sure that if you know, more than five people log on at once that the thing doesn't crash because uh, that would be bad. Oh, we've been there. Six people. That's that's a threshold. I'm telling you. Six it's, people. It's, it's, we live in that world where, <laughs> you know, you, you think you've got it all covered and you've tested it. And, you know, the word that they throw around is robust. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm terrified that this yeah. thing's going to drop and a bunch of people, you know, start to use it and and it's it's you know they're getting a a, a frozen image or an yeah. offline icon or something it's, Cursing it's your scary name. yeah, yeah. but so there's also it'll be followed um a couple of months after the app version drops it'll be followed by a six hour linear cut oh, wow. that'll okay. air on hbo proper Fantastic. I mean, I, I, I so I, I imagine in a way, are the rules of, of 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 doing that, of doing a branch of narrative, of building an app, of even directing a film, are they roughly akin to the rules of robbing a bank that that you have in Logan Lucky? Shit happens. You got to roll with the punches. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's a, it's a it's a pretty similar enterprise. Um, there's a big difference between movie jail and jail jail. Um, <laughs> one of them smells better. Yeah, but, this is true. You know, there, 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 there are very clear connections between the two. You are, you have an idea. You put a team together. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of obstacles, um, a lot of unpredictable occurrences. You have to adapt, mm-hmm. um, and and the 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 measure of success even can be moved. Mm. Uh, by forces that aren't even in your control. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing, if you're, if you're, for instance, so you, you could be pulling off a heist and it turns out that the thing that you took because of world events is now absolutely worthless. Yes. You know, yeah. and so in the same way, when you release a movie, um, you're, you're subject to, different metrics of of success mm. and so you may you may feel like you came you may come out the end the other end of something and feel like you this was a very successful endeavor um and other people may not think so mm. are you referring specifically to experiences in your past where maybe oh you i mean felt that yeah way and it, it goes both ways yeah um i think you have to you just have to hang on to your compass, you know, about yeah. how you judge what you're doing. It's not, it's a very, the balance you need to find between being confident and yet not being so egocentric that you yes. can't hear anything is is one that you're constantly assessing, you know. Mm. You need to, it's not, it's, you know especially if you're making movies on a certain scale. I mean, this is just not for the faint of heart. Mm. Um, it's a very pressurized uh, environment. Mm. Uh, I do everything I can to to sort of release that pressure. I think if you spent time on one of our sets, you'd mm. find that it's um, relaxed, but but there's 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 a real sense of motion. You know, things are happening yeah. and it's very focused. And um, 
you know, very purposeful mm-hmm. and very lean. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a, it's just an ongoing, you know, process of discovery in terms of how you, how you receive things. I'm not, I'm not a director who likes to go in and sort of dominate the environment okay. that I'm occupying. Yeah. I'm looking to key off what the environment is, is, has inherently yeah. or, is, or is showing me. Yeah. And, and that includes the actors, of course. And, and so I think to, in order to do that, since that's the way I like to work, um, you know, your antenna need to be up yes. and, and, and sensitive. And so to me, that means, yeah, not walking around with a bullhorn um, and sort of telling people what to do all the time. I'm yeah. kind of, I'm trying to, especially with the cast, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I don't want them in their head. I don't want them thinking too much. I want them behaving. I want them reacting. Yes. And so I try to, I try to keep my direction very uh, practical and very physical I find that if we can if we can figure out the physicality of the scene mm-hmm. that that everything else will follow mm-hmm. that if you know where to be and how to be physically you're you're going to you're going to be fine and so you know I'm looking for things to tell them get to to give them that that will put them in the the place of being the character instead of talking talking to them and getting them in their heads that's not a good place for an actor to be <laughs> and what about things like uh, composition and and uh and and just setting up the shot i mean is that something that that comes very quickly to you now is it something that's very natural obviously you're working with yourself as your own dp that, that yes. must help well if you know w- what i will have done is spent a certain amount of time deciding what the toolkit is and what the rules are, what the rules of composition are, um, what can I do and what can I not do. Um, in this case, the, the biggest, most obvious difference between the toolkit that exists in an Oceans film yeah. and the one that exists in Logan Lucky yeah. is that I, I said to myself, you're not allowed to use the zoom. <laughs> and the zoom lens is a gigantic part of the oceans films. I mean, a huge part. I'm using it all the time almost. And so to be able to, from the get go, go can't do that here. It's the wrong vibe. It's, it's, it's just not right Mm. that whatever, whatever sense of movement that I want to create, I'm going to have to do strictly through composition, moving the camera and cutting you know, that immediately puts you into a certain space. I think those kind of rules are good. It drives me nuts when I see a movie in which clearly they just think you can do anything you want all the time. Yeah. That, that to me is, is incoherent and not pleasant to look at. Yeah. Um, so then you're sort of working with like, here are the lenses that, that I'm primarily going to be using. And then, you know, you get the thing up on its feet and... I'm always thinking, first shot, last shot. How am I getting in? How am I getting out? Of every scene? Yeah. Okay. Transitions. Whenever I talk to young filmmakers, if I'm at a school or whatever, I spend a lot of time talking about transitions. Mm-hmm. I go, you have to be thinking about transitions. I go, if you only understand transitions, you can almost fake your way through a career. <laughs> I mean, they're that critical. Wow. And so I'm always, I'm always, what's... First shot, last shot. And sometimes when you're blocking, 
you you see the last shot first okay. and you work backwards from the last shot. You know, my goal is to I when when I've blocked and figured out how something should go together, I uh, that I know where all the cut points are. I know where all the cuts are coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally only shooting the pieces that I need. Literally sometimes to the point of I just need those four lines. I don't need the lines on either end of those. Yeah. You know, like it's it, that's that's my goal is yeah. to be that precise. If you're if you, if you can do that, yeah. you can move really fast. Of course. I mean, you said uh, you uh, recently another person from Empire interviewed you for the magazine, and you said that nowadays you'd be able to shoot uh, sex lies and videotape in fifteen days. It was thirty, I think. Yeah, probably 30. twelve. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Is- no, it's no. I look back on that, and it's thirty days. It's ridiculous. I mean, Logan <laughs> Lucky was thirty six total. Wow. Um, Including all the, uh, the everything. The- Wow. Um, so it's, yeah, look, that's just experience. That's, that's just being on the floor a lot. Um, and I'm always confused when I see someone who's getting slower <laughs> as they go on, you know, that the gaps <laughs> between films are getting longer, the schedules are getting longer. Yeah. You know, I mean, that always surprises me because I feel like, it's all about it's all about eliminating you know the 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 myriad wrong versions of the movie yes. you know as you go on yeah. a micro level and a macro level i would think i mean i can tell you i'm i'm just better at that process than i was even 4 years ago just because of everything that i've made since candelabra Mm. Um, so I'm, I, I don't understand why this, this, <laughs> this, someone would become less efficient over time. I don't understand that. Of course, you're, you're not unique, but you're rare among, uh, uh, top filmmakers in that you shoot your own stuff, you edit your own stuff as well. Does that give you an edge in terms of understanding where the scene's going, understanding how it's playing out? Um, yeah, because those are two conversations that I'm not having. Mm. And and conversations take time. Yeah. Um, the. But I I don't think ultimately, even if I had other people doing those two jobs, um, that it would. Well, it's impossible to say if that would slow me down mm. or not. Um, but it certainly makes it it makes it all very. It reconnects me to when I started, you know, when I started making short films as a kid, um, as a teenager, it, it, the ability to, to occupy those three positions puts me right back um, into, into that place and, and reconnects me to what I like to call the, the enthusiasm of the amateur. Mm. You know what I mean? It puts me back in that time before you had to worry about the things that you have to worry about now. And it was just a sort of pure creative space, yeah. you know, to play in. And, you know, I know, I know for the actors, the intimacy of it, um, I think is appealing. Yes. 
Well, I've spoken to him. You know, I'm, I'm more often than not as close to them as I am to you now. Oh, really? And so when, and sometimes closer. Yeah. And so the, the ability to, during a take, I can, I can whisper to them. I can touch them <laughs> if I need them to move. Okay. I can, you know, and they know when I say we've got it, they know I saw it because I was right there. I wasn't 60 feet away. <laughs> Watching it on the screen. That yeah. Day. So I think. I think for them, there's there's a real the, the the intimacy of it and the speed of it in the sense that when they when they come to set and we mm. start blocking, mm. as soon as I figured it out, we're shooting and we don't stop until it's done, and so there's no break mm. in the energy of trying to do the scene. Yes. You know what I mean? And yeah. I think that I think that for an actor, it's almost like a it's it's very close to a play because mm. I'm typically, you know, we're going, we're just going through it. And, you know, in a couple of hours, like the whole thing is done. And I think for them, they, they never left the character. Yeah. Uh, actors must love that. They must I, love that. They must I, love being, a, they seem happy. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I know I'm happy. Yeah. I know I like, I like the fact that I've set up a situation in which, the lighting is either all available light or it's all practical light that's been built into the set. Mm. So when I say we're turning around, all I have to do is get up, walk four <laughs> feet, point the camera in the other direction, and I go, okay, here we go. And there's there's just none of that. The The energy's never being sucked out of the um, experience yes. by technical issues. Yes, You know, for me, this is a dream, all this new technology the sensitivity of the digital sensors mm. um, and the, the fact that the cameras are getting smaller, like all of this stuff um, is, is such an incredible gift I, for somebody that likes to work the way I like to work. Did you uh, change your style in any way at all when, uh, in that, that four year uh, semi hiatus of yours when you came back and directed the first day on Logan Lucky? Were you wants to be a different director in your head? I don't not, no, not different. Just um, a little. I, you know, it was two years of the Nick was a real workout. Mm. Um, so I just I came in feeling like um, my endurance. You know, but my uh, Logan didn't seem very hard. Let's put it that way compared <laughs> to to the Nick. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah, it was it was a you know, it was a 10k run instead of a marathon. So yeah. that that didn't seem very intimidating. Um but you know, it's important also to to be scared. Mm. It's important it's important to have some aspect of the thing be terrifying. Um there were two things I was worried about on Logan Lucky, the first was that it be different enough from a, from an Ocean's movie yeah. to not feel like a copy of an Ocean's movie. Yeah, um, and I was I was very sensitive to that in in sort of at every level of the production, um, and the other the other was just the fact that we were trying out this this sort of new approach to distribution and 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 in the midst of many many uh meetings and conversations about this sort of administration of that 
not forgetting that none of it matters if we don't make a good movie. Yeah. You know, that, that, <laughs> that these two things need to happen at the same time. Absolutely. And to make sure that I was devoting the, the appropriate amount of psychic space mm-hmm. to the making of the film as opposed to the idea of how we were going to put the film out. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things that's that doesn't get mentioned, I think, as much as it ought to, um, on a movie like Logan, and especially on the Oceans films, is my relationship with David Holmes yes. and how crucial that is to the film. Because if that, the music is, is if, it's, if it's one of the things, if the, if the music's two degrees off, it may as well be 180 degrees off. Like, it has to be right on. You have to be right right at absolute north yeah. for, for the thing to sort of lift up. And this was different than the Oceans films in the sense that um, I, was, I, was, I was looking for a sound that was, that was different from those films. And for whatever reason... David sent, he always sends me like a bucket of things to listen to. Okay. The stuff that he's got on vinyl that he's, uh, I don't know where he finds this stuff. <laughs> um, but he, it's always like a massive amount of, of material that I've never heard before, most of it. Yeah. For some reason on this project, the, the volume of material that he turned over to me was was three times what he'd ever turned over to me before. I mean, hundreds and hundreds oh, wow. of tracks okay. that I had to go through, you know, and and start to pull from. And gradually, I, I would have like bins in the Avid, like bins within bins within bins of like distilling, you know, going from 350 songs down to 100, down to 50, down to 20, wow. you know, sort of as we were going through the movie. One of the, piece, one of the pieces of music, though, that I identified immediately was the song that ends the film, Flashing Lights. Yeah. I knew exactly, exa- as soon as I heard it, I went, that's the last song in the film. And the shot that we shot, it's 13 seconds from the beginning of the song to the downbeat. And I timed that last shot to end exactly at 13 seconds so that the credit would come up. Like I knew exactly <laughs> what I wanted to do with that. Amazing. Um, so as a result of, of what David provided for me, there's, there's less score, there's less original score than um, we would have typically, just because he found so much material that I felt was real, that worked really well. And David, you know, David just wants the movie to work. He doesn't yeah. he, he doesn't have this thing of like, well, you know, I don't understand why there aren't more, you know, things that you're having me do. He feels like it's all of a piece, which is why actually the the credit on the movie says music David Holmes as opposed to music by David oh, Holmes. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Because I felt like, well, music by is kind of misleading. Yeah. But music is not because yes. David sort of found all of the music. Indeed. So it's all within his purview. Fantastic. Um, but for whatever reason, I felt that distinction was, was worth making. And was, uh, was John Denver baked into the, uh, the screenplay already? Then? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 um, the performance 
at the pageant um, was was written into the script. What we ended up doing was um, as we were as we were working on the script, what we ended up doing was adding uh, those references at the beginning of the film to to the origins of that song and why mm. why it resonates with him. And and also I thought I started going back through uh, the whole John Denver catalog um, and found um, the song Some Days Are Diamonds that I thought was a great opening and a way to sort of set up, you know, this callback that was mm. going to come later. And again, it's 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 such a crucial part of the process to to assess where where music should go what kind of music it should be should you um take a series of scenes mm-hmm. for instance and collapse them and turn them into a sequence mm-hmm. which means probably you're going to need some sort of score yes. you know to make that work um but those kind of you know macro editorial decisions um, sort of have to happen in tandem with with how the music is being approached, mm. and you know lately, I think I've tended to um, not want to score dramatic scenes as much as I used to. Okay, um, I'm tending to want to let those play on their own more, or and and I'm also. I'm always on the lookout for an opportunity to to take this to have the score not do um, what the scenes are doing and yes. sort of use it as a way to to turn it into a third thing yeah. as opposed to like doubling down on the yeah. emotion of the scene itself. Yeah, um, that's not always appropriate, but but I always ask myself that question: What if I go in the other direction? What if if I have a series, for instance, if I have a sequence with a series of fast cuts in it, mm-hmm. what if I have a piece of slow music under it? You know, <laughs> okay, like yeah, it's yeah. it's you know you have to make sure you're not always falling into this trap of having everything doing the same thing. Yeah, um, and you know that's the fun part. I think I think it's well known how much I enjoy editing. Yes, um, and and that's you know. Does that, does that mean films have to be wrestled away from you at the end, or you can just... Well, I mean, look... One more day. You know, mixing the film is always a terrifying prospect for anybody who's in post uh, on one of our movies, because it's really hard not to sit on a dubbing stage and look at something day after day and not want to go back in and start playing yes, around. Yes. Um, the good news is that the technology that exists now doesn't preclude that, yes. you know. And, and if you're if you're a reasonable person... Um, and, and the, the cuts are making the movie better. Nobody has a problem with that. But when I started making films, I mean, that was, you just didn't do that. You didn't get deep into the mix and start, and start pulling your movie apart, No, true. Uh, you true. know, cause it was just, it, it would become a technical problem, yeah. you know? Um, but the good news is that that we've now, you know, I tend to work with the same people uh, repeatedly, and we have mm-hmm. a, a a way of working down that I'm not I'm not spending that much time uh, at, at the final mix as I used to because we've just gotten very efficient with. 
the fact that I'm cutting every night and turning things over to the sound department as we go, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a lot of premixing being done, like things are a lot of things are happening early. Mm. And so I'm not having to I'm not having to spend um, unnecessary hours at, at a, you know, very serious uh, hourly rate on a dubbing stage, <laughs> you know, listening to stuff that that I, I may have already heard or contributed to by cutting sound effects myself, you yes. know, in the Avid. So Absolutely. it's it's all getting it's all getting more efficient. Um, you, you say, of course, that you want to make sure this movie is distinct from the Oceans movies uh, stylistically and in, in many other ways as well, cast being uh, another one. Uh, but there's a, there's a lovely moment towards the end where um, uh, uh, there's a reference to Ocean 7-Eleven. Now, as a, as a big fan of meta references, as a, as a huge fan of Oceans 12, uh, I love that. It's very much in the, in the spirit of that. That was in the script, and, and I, I, I let it go because I felt like it was absolutely organic mm. to to somebody in that region, yes. you know, uh, describing what happened in that way. Yeah. And, and I felt like, no, somebody from there would call it that, you know, because of the sort of lo-fi nature of it. And so I let it slide. Um, and And... Hopefully, uh, yeah, no, people won't uh, be too upset or thrown. <laughs> um, I mean, look, the studio on Ocean's 12, the studio was very, very anxious about the Julia stuff. Yeah. And um, I said, look, all I can tell you is I, I've got two precedents that I can cite that are. One of them is over 60 years old. And that's his girl Friday when Cary Grant makes the Ralph Bellamy. <laughs> he looks like joke. that guy, Ralph. Yeah, and Ralph Bellamy, yeah. the fact that in some like it hot, uh, Tony Curtis is employing an accent in a time period before anybody ever knew who Cary Grant was. <laughs> He's doing Cary Grant, but in 1927, like yes. there was no Cary Grant yeah, yet, of course. Um, and I go, and nobody. In a comedy, you can do that. Yeah, of course. You know, like of there course. aren't there aren't a lot of rules, and so I managed to I managed to calm everybody down. Um, but yeah, this was you know this is like one little I felt like one little thing we could do. Well, of course, if you took it to its logical conclusion, then you have Logan Lucky, a movie in which people be going every five minutes. You look a lot like Channing Tatum. Yeah, exactly. and your brother looks a lot like Adam Driver. It's uh, it's strange. You have to you have to let these things go. Well, what's uh, funny is when we took Channing to the Charlotte Motor Speedway to shoot stuff there, nobody recognized him because <laughs> that's just not you know how yeah. he normally looks. Now, he nice told thing. me he said I would dress like this every day. If I could, if I could walk around L.A. without freaking people out, I'd dress like this every day. <laughs> he goes, this is how I like to dress. And of course, he, he didn't have to. He wasn't on a yeah. lettuce and lemon juice diet the way he was on Magic Mike. So I think he was pretty happy. You've always worked with Janine a, a few times now. Uh, I imagine you've developed a shorthand. Uh, did- yeah, I think so. I mean, look, there's there's trust plays a big part of that when you've worked with somebody before. Um it it makes things easier, um, but I have to say there were there there were a lot of people on this movie I'd never worked with before, mm-hmm. and they seemed to fall very quickly into the rhythm of of how we like to work. And um, certainly for Daniel, 
the ability to cut loose like this, show his comic chops. Uh, Daniel's funny. Like, Daniel's a fun person to hang out with. He's always looking for the joke in any situation. I think for him to be able to show that side of him and not have to carry the whole film was was nice. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. Did he uh, did he spring that line reading of incarcerated on, on you? No, or that's that, actually in the script in the with script. four okay. hyphens. Yeah. No, it was... <laughs> Very definitive, um, as it turns out. No, he was... I told him, I don't care how you look. You're like, <laughs> you can... You're not protecting anything here. Like, you have a blank slate. And so he he went for it. Did he show up looking like that? Because I know Seth MacFarlane showed up perhaps unexpectedly. He sent me... Daniel sent me a, a picture of his hair after he got it dyed. Yeah. And I said, looks great. <laughs> so just two uh, very, very last quick things. Um, to go back to working with Channing, uh, when you first worked with him on, on Haywire, did you have preconceived notions of what he was like and did he surprise you in a way that I know you, you said years ago that George Clooney surprised you, that the, the notion you had of who Clooney was was different from who Clooney is? No. I mean, what what... I mean, I'd seen him in things and liked him. And what I and the first day, the first scene we shot was uh, the diner scene uh, at the beginning of the film. And and Channing came in and he said, "Look, I was thinking of playing it like because it wasn't it wasn't described in the script this way." He said, "I'm thinking of playing it like I've been up." all night driving all night and I'm like hung up like they pulled me out of like I was out drinking and I got this call yeah like get in a car and go to this place or whatever as sort of a misdirect yeah and I went yeah that sounds good you know again none of that was in the script okay. it was all very you know like him asking for a beer uh -huh. when he sits down like that yeah, was yeah. all chanting and so we shot the scene and I thought oh I like this kid like he showed up with something. He had an idea. It was a good idea, and it really helped. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, that's one of those things that for a director right away, you you sort of you you bind with your actor, and you're you feel, you know, well, I want to continue that kind of back and forth. Like yeah. that was really fruitful. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, uh, you've talked about this experiment, this distribution experiment. And the movie has opened in the states. Uh, uh, first weekends are always intriguing for a director. What's your take on on how it's done, and what does that mean going forward? Well, I think look, there was the the beauty of the way this model set up is there was no version of this in which we lose. Like <laughs> as soon as somebody bought a ticket, we were in profit. Yeah. The question is like, how big will you win? Yeah. Um, I'm still trying to figure out. You know, I, I think we all felt that we would do better opening weekend. Mm -hmm. We have two clear weekends in front of us. We got pretty strong reviews and pretty good exit polls. So, yeah. But I'm curious to find out why uh, the audience that the movie, the, the audience that would seem to connect most directly with the characters and the circumstances hasn't turned up okay that that we haven't figured out yet i don't know if they're waiting mm -hmm. to see what happens i don't know if like what's happening in the united states right now yeah, yeah you know yeah. had an effect yeah. like you know I, I it's really hard to tell i mean we targeted them very very directly repeatedly you know and the sort of for lack of a better term rural audience and and they sort of 
you know, stayed away. Like our big numbers were all in the cities. Oh, really? Which okay. surprised me. That's interesting. Um, so I'm still waiting to see like where we're going to keep going after yeah. them. We're going to see what happens. Of course, the business has changed so much over the years. I mean, you know, ordinarily years and years ago, you'd have had the situation where Logan Lucky would play for six months and would find his audience eventually. Now you have the situation where two, three weeks and you're you're done. Yeah, like I said, it's but true. But does, does this new model... Well, I think, I think one of the reasons we picked that date is that we had s- several weeks of no giant releases and, and because we felt like the movie would have playability. Yeah. So we'll find out. But like I said, we've already, you know, 46% of the d- domestic box office goes into a pool that is shared by the cast and crew. So mm-hmm. there's no version of this in which yeah. we didn't succeed. It's just a matter of like, is it a big win or is it, is it a home run or is it a single, yeah. you know, but um, I'm, I'm really glad that we did it. Like we got to do it. We talked about it and then yeah. we went and did it. Like that's a good feeling. Absolutely. And, uh, and you're, you're not done, right? You're, you're no, back, in, you're back in the game. Now. I've got something in the holster already. Okay. Fantastic. Look forward to it. Steven Soderbergh. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was Steven Soderbergh, uh, and that is it for this uh, very, very special uh, interview edition of the Empire Podcast. Our regular podcast is out every Friday. If you don't already listen to that and subscribe, we would love it if you would do so, and obviously leave us lovely glowing reviews on iTunes as well. That would be great. Uh, Our next special podcast is out on August 29th. Uh, If that sounds like Judgment Day to you, that is not coincidental. That's because... Terminator 2 Judgment Day is re-released here in the UK on the 29th of August and we're bringing out our very first retro spoiler special uh, to celebrate. Talking to Robert Patrick, the T-1000 himself, and talking about the movie as well. But enough plugging. That is it from us. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I've been Chris Hewitt. Goodbye.